Good evening, everyone. How are you? My name's Eric, and uh, yeah, I'm the one that picked Babette's Feast. Sorry. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to, to E3. So Babette's Feast is a film that was released in 1987. Uh, it is Danish. It's adopted from a short story um, by the, the same woman who wrote uh, Out of Africa, and that was another movie, I think, from the late 80s, early 90s. It actually won Best, uh, best Foreign Language Film in the 1988 Oscars. So it it's actually a legit film. It's actually very, very well done. It is very different from, you know, the movies that we're used to seeing here. There's no CGI. It, it's, it is very slowly paced. The, the director actually said that it, it's really more like watching a series of paintings put together. It's a very visual film. It has a great um, color palette if you're into to those sort of things. And I wanted to talk about it because it's, it's really a, a great story. It's a very odd story. Uh, it's very small. It's not epic. It's essentially the story of mm, maybe six or seven characters in total. And kind of uh, this odd story and, and, and something that happens that is really, really special. And so what I want to do because... I know that most of us have not seen this movie, and I'm not even going to advocate that you go to see it. I just think it has something to tell us about the nature of God and the nature of the world, and I want to kind of share it with you. So I want to tell you uh, who the characters are and try to summarize the film as best I can. Like I said, there's really only six characters, and it starts off with the story of uh, essentially a pastor, a preacher, and his two daughters. And he starts this church in this small village in Denmark, in this remote area. <clears throat> this is him. These are his young daughters. Now, the movie kind of goes back and forth between these two time periods. It's a span of about 50 years, 49 years. So uh, the father is the pastor. He starts this small church. His daughters are there. We don't know what happens uh, to their mother, to his wife. She's never a part of the film. So he's the first character. The second character, which is lumping them together, are the two daughters. Uh, so this is them when they're young. Their names are Martina and Philip, Philippa. And then the movie, like I said, advances in time, about 49 years. And this is them when they are older. The third character uh, is, uh, is really this woman, Babette, where the film gets the name. She's a French maid, and, this, and the first part of the story is really just unpacking how this woman, Babette, comes to serve these two sisters in this remote area of Denmark. Because she's from Paris, we know that. She shows up one night on their doorstep in this driving rainstorm, and she says, you know, this is who I am. She comes sort of with a letter of recommendation that simply says she's from Paris and oh, by the way, she can cook. And she says, can I stay with you? I'm seeking asylum. You know, my husband has been executed. My son has been executed in Paris, in France. And the two sisters say, no, sorry, you can't. We have no money. Uh, we don't know who you are. You're sort of an outsider. Babette asks them again, essentially pleads with them, please let me stay. You don't have to pay me. Just let me stay with you and serve you. And so Babette stays with them and stays with them 
for 14 years serving them. The next character in the story is this church that uh, their father starts. This is the church in later years. And the reason I would lump it together as sort of one character is that in the movie, the church acts as one character. The church is preoccupied in the movie with unity. They're citing the scriptures that says that it's good for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. And in the movie, nobody from this church really ever acts apart from the group. They speak with one voice. So when they're happy, they're all happy. When they're sad, they're all sad. When they're grumpy, they're all grumpy. It's one character in the movie. Now, there's two other characters that sort of serve as catalyzing events in the movie. And the first is this uh, young man at, at first from the military. And he shows up because essentially he's, he's exiled there. He's making a mess of his life. He's spending all of his money irresponsibly. He's out of control. And his father says, I'm sending you to this village where your aunt lives and you need to go spend like three months there. Well, when he gets there, he falls in love with one of the daughters. He falls in love with Martina. And he also attempts to join the community that's there. He starts attending their little church gatherings. And he, and he begins to, to try and make his way into the community. But eventually the tension just becomes too much for him. And there's this scene in the movie where he just stands up. And essentially says, I can't do this. And he walks away. And when he walks away, he throws himself into his military career. He essentially says, I can't do this community thing. I can't do this, this other life that I saw and tasted. So I'm going to throw myself into my, into my career. And he embraces everything that it can offer him. And he marries well. He, he obviously, the love affair doesn't work out with he and Martina. So he marries this woman. He, he rises through the ranks and becomes a general, becomes powerful. He gets everything he wanted out of his career. But he turns his back on this very unique, very special life that, that, that he could have had. And then there's another gentleman that shows up early in the film. He's a famous opera singer. And he comes seeking rest. So he comes to this village just seeking some solitude, seeking peace and quiet. And in the middle of a church gathering, he hears the other sister, Philippa, singing. And she's got an amazing voice. And he approaches her and he says, you know, if you just let me train you, you can become one of the premier opera singers in all of Europe. And so she agrees. And so they begin to have lessons together. And she's only ever sung church music. She's only ever sung with her father and with the church. And so he begins to teach her these songs that are, they're not really church songs. They're a little bit racy for the time, right? And she becomes very uncomfortable. It's nothing creepy or weird, but it's outside of her comfort zone. And he also begins to fall in love with her. So one day, when the tension becomes too much, when she's too confronted with the new things that he's teaching her, she says, I can no longer take lessons from you. And in that moment, you know, she shuts the door on the idea that she'll ever go to the rest of Europe as a singer. She shuts the door on this love affair. He's brokenhearted. He leaves 
the village and returns to France. Now, ironically, he's the one that sends Babette to the sisters. That's just kind of incidental to the story. He goes back to France. He's aware of Babette's plight. He's the one that writes the letter of recommendation to the sisters. So the sisters exist in this world that's remote and isolated. And they have this little church full of people. And over time, you know, I t- said the movie takes, takes place in about of a span or, or deals with a span of about 49 years. The sisters do their best with the church after their father dies. But something begins to go wrong. The sisters are faithful because as the church ages, they show up day to day to feed the folks that can't get out of the house because they're older. And so they make soup. Babette actually makes the soup and they take it to the people who can't get food for themselves. And they take bread to them and they serve them faithfully day in and day out. But what begins to happen over time is that this little community that was so preoccupied with unity begins to fracture. That what the sisters are doing, even though it's good, it's not quite enough to hold together the unity of the church. And there's this scene where they're eating this meal together and they're kind of, uh, pairs of people are kind of leaning back from the table and talking. They're going like, you cheated me the other day when I was buying like wheat from you. And the other guy's like, yo, I never liked you anyway. And it's this heartbreaking scene of these people who were trying to live in unity and love and they can't do it. And the sisters kind of can't make it happen. They're doing everything they can, but something is missing. And this is when the last character, I would say, of the film emerges. You see, Babette, we're told, wins the lottery. In France, every year she has a friend who buys her a lottery ticket and she gets a notice in the mail. You won 10,000 francs. And so she decides to prepare a feast. And the last character of the film, I say, is the food. Because the food takes center stage of like the last 30 minutes plus of the film. And it's this French feast. Now, I got to tell you, I don't like French food. If this was Thai food, I would be like, counting down the minutes before I could get out of here and go eat. But she prepares this French feast for them. And you would think that uh, the little church would be excited about it. If nothing else, it would be like a heck of a potluck, right? Holy smokes, like this amazing French feast for this, in this out-of-the-way Danish village. Folks have never had a meal like this. But what's funny is their reaction because they actually get scared to death of what this might do to them because they've never experienced anything like this. It's not on their radar screen. It's not on their, in their paradigm at all to have something this lavish given to them. And they react with like this comical fear of what it might do to them. Now, so we're going to watch this scene. There's subtitles, so just read it. And it's meant to be funny to see what happens when a community gets confronted with something that's so new they don't know what to do with it. So just watch this brief scene. Mm-hmm. 
dangerous and evil powers. A witch's Sabbath. We promise that no matter what happens, not a word about the food will pass our lips. Now, like I said, I don't like French food, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing inherently evil about French food. But these folks are getting confronted with something that is so far beyond their understanding that their first reaction is fear. And I instantly think, first of all, of, of Psalm 34 that simply says this, that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. That God gave us these senses to recognize his goodness. But their response, in, instead of recognizing the potential goodness of God through this gift, is to say, oh no, this might be a witch's Sabbath that we're coming to. <laughs> so whatever you do, don't say a word. Pretend that the food is not good or doesn't exist. Don't recognize the gift. So the feast happens, nonetheless. And in the feast, <clears throat> I think we begin to see the takeaways of the movie. And so I'm just going to tell you what they are. And the first is simply this. That gifts, when they're prepared by someone lovingly like Babette does, gifts can heal a community. Because as they eat, and, and there's these comical scenes where they, they're obviously like, their minds are getting blown, their taste buds are getting blown up, but they will not speak about how good the food is. They're like just pretending it doesn't exist. And yet, and yet, and yet, they begin to turn to each other and they begin to say, you know what, I did cheat you the other day. Would you please forgive me? And in the light of this lavish gift that's given, they begin to speak words of forgiveness and acceptance of love. And where the fractures were being formed in the community, they begin to heal up. And it's in the face of this gift that they won't recognize. You could almost say that the effects of the gift are working even before they recognize what the gift is. The second thing that happens during the meal is this idea that gifts can create something new. That gifts, when they're given, like Babette gives, do something that cause a new thing to happen 
in our lives. There's this scene that closes out the movie. Uh, because the, the, character, the character is a church, and because uh, churches tend to sing songs, if you notice in the movie, if you ever watch it, the church sings this one song over and over again throughout the movie for 49 years, right? They sing this song about Jerusalem and the end of time when God is going to show up and kind of heal everything. But as the community fractures in the movie, they're still singing this song. And yet when Babette gives this feast, at the end of the feast, this church, this group of people, they wander out into their little town square and they spontaneously gather around this well and they sing a song that's never been sung in the movie. It's spontaneous and it's beautiful. And it's in light of this gift that's given. Gifts create something new. And I believe that we know something about new songs and God knows something about new songs and newness in the response to gifts. There's a psalm, number 40, says this, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. And he has given me what? A new song, a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. And then it ends this way, that many will see what he has done and be amazed and they will put their trust in the Lord. <clears throat> Gifts, when they're given, create something new. God is a God of a new song. God is a God of new thoughts. There's this wonderful scene in the middle of the feast, and I want to set it up just a moment. The young man that was in the military and fell in love with Martina, he goes away, and he throws himself into this world of power and affluence, prestige, and at the end of the movie, he comes back to the feast freely. He's not exiled back there. He comes back there because his aunt is actually a member of the church. He's the only one in the room that's ever had a French meal. He's the only one that knows what's going on. And throughout the meal, he's the one who's going, don't you people get what's going on here? He's not a member of the church, but he knows the measure of the gift that's being given. And all the while, the people in the church are just like, don't talk about the food. While he's going, do you not see the miracle and the lavishness of the gift that's being given? And yet, something amazing happens in him as well. Because remember, he goes away from this village rejected. He goes away feeling like, I can't live this life. And in the midst of this meal, the best meal, he says, that he's ever had, something new happens in him as well. Something different begins in his spirit. And we're just gonna watch this speech, and then I wanna take a moment, and I wanna reread his words to you. So watch this. 
den tid kommer då när ögon öppnas och vi omsider inser att någon är utan väg. Vi ska nog vänta i tid och motta det i tacksamhet. Nåden Allt som vi har valt är för givet. Allt som vi har avstått från ger oss tillräckligt. Ja, vi får också ge tillbaka till det var kastet bort. Now remember, he was offered a part of this life, and he rejected it. And he said, show me, world, what you can give me. But then he's given this marvelous gift as well as his church. And he says these words. I'm just going to read them again. This is a slightly different translation. But he recognizes this. The moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. We need only await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace makes no conditions. And see that which we have chosen is given us. And that which we have refused because he walked away once. That which we have refused is also granted us. That which we rejected is granted us in the form of a gift. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. That's what gifts can do. That's new. That's new. But what the problem in the movie is, is how do you recognize it? Because he's the one who's saying, this gift is here. But he's in a room full of people who don't want to look. And I want to suggest that um, one of the inherent difficulties with gifts like this is that we have trouble recognizing them. We have trouble recognizing that we sit down to a feast every single day. And I want to be clear here. Like the movie, it's, it's about food. But it's about something else. Because it's not just any gift that causes communities to heal. It's not just any gift that announces something new into your life. I don't think that at all. The movie points to a deeper reality, to a deeper level of ultimate reality that is the true nature of what can do these things. And it's this. The first thing I would point out to you is that, yes, Babette wins the lottery. 10,000 francs. She spends 
this money on this meal. They eat this meal together. Something amazing happens. New happens. Healing happens. And then the, when the wives say, Babette, after the feast, it's been great having you in our life. We're so sad you have to go back to France now. And you know what she says? She says, I can't because guess what? I spent it all on the meal. Gifts that don't hold anything back. That's what changes people. She says, there's nothing for me in France now. It's all gone. There's another thing that kind of hints at what we're talking about. If you, uh, if you notice, if you ever watch the movie, in, in the scene of the feast, around the table, including the sisters, there's 12 people. And the 13th person is serving. The 13th person is bringing bread and wine to the twelve. And if you know that story, the story at all, you know that 2,000 years ago, there was 12 people that sat in a room around a table. And they were followers of this rabbi and this prophet and this savior. And the 12 sat around the table and the 13th said, I have come to serve. Let me wash your feet. Don't serve me. I'll serve you. And what Babette's Feast tells us is that the nature of a love that gives everything, the nature of a love that serves first can heal and create something new. If you've ever watched any sports game, you know John 3, right? John three sixteen, right? For God, what? Loved the world so much that he gave who? His one and only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. And it's just as simple. God loves and God gives. God loves, God gives. This is the gift that we're talking about. A guy named Paul wrote to a church in a place called Philippi, and he tells uh, again of this love that some of us know. He writes this in Philippians chapter two, that though Jesus was God, in the terms of the movie, though we had a premier French chef, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is the gift that changes. This is the gift that holds nothing back. This gift named Jesus, this gift of God that says, I'll serve you and I won't hold one thing back. I'll spend it all. Jesus' words on the cross were not, it's almost finished. They were, it is done. The money is spent. The gift is given in full. All we have to do is to sit there and realize that there's a feast in front of us. 
But some of us, <clears throat> that's the problem. The problem is recognition, right? Some of us are like the general. Some of us would say, I have never uh, sort of encountered anything like this before. We say he's entered French, we, we say that he's eaten French food, but there's that moment where he's like, I've never experienced a gift like this. And his job is just to kind of stand up and go like, oh my gosh, this is a gift, I'll accept it. So maybe, just to be really honest, maybe tonight you're here and you're like, I've never heard of this gift. I need to accept it. There's a Jesus, there's a gift that didn't hold anything back and all I need to do is say, I accept the gift. I'll do it. But for a lot of us in this room, and I can only speak because I know a lot of you, we have the problem that the church has. We have the problem that maybe we've been doing this so long that it's become a little bit familiar. And we've forgotten how amazing the feast is that's laid out before us. Now, sometimes we have outsiders that come in and go like, don't you guys get this Jesus thing? And we're like, oh, yeah, whoa, yeah, that's great. But a lot of us come week in and week out, and we've forgotten that God has given everything. He's not holding anything back. And we also sometimes sit there and go like, whatever you do, don't say how marvelous it is. Whatever you do, don't say anything about the food because if I raise my hands in worship, people might think I'm goofy. Don't say anything. And I think, I think that we're just missing out when we do that because it's all grace. One of the great lies that, that I'm told is that I've earned anything. One of the great lies that I'm told is that there's no grace in my life. Because ultimately, guess what? Everything is a gift. You may not think that you have a feast laid out for you every day, but you do. All of us have been given much. All of us have a occasion to be grateful. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Brennan Manning. And I just want to read his words. I, I, I read this, this this week. And just listen to this. Grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there's much that we may have earned, our degree, our salary, our home and garden, <clears throat> a Miller Lite and a good night's sleep, all this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life, eyes to see, hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It's not reward for our faithfulness, for our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it.
Every day, friends, there's a gift, a feast laid out in front of us. And this is God's nature, to give this gift. Because God knows that we need celebration in our lives. God knows that if you don't have ways to celebrate his goodness, you forget I want to read a passage of scripture that I literally had never heard until this week, right? I love when this happens. This is crazy. Deuteronomy 14, right? Moses is giving this sermon to the people of God. He says, now when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, okay? Oh, the church is talking about money, right? Here we go. It's going to be good now. Everybody loves when the church talks about money, right? When the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, when you get the job promotion, when you seal the deal, when something great happens, when the Lord blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name, he's talking about Jerusalem, for his name to be honored, it might be too far for you to bring the tithe. If so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds, put the money in a pouch, and go to the place the Lord your God has chosen. Now we're going to stop. Because if you've been around churches, you know what's coming next, right? Sell it. Put the money in a pouch and then go and donate it to the church, right? Give it to the priest, right? Or maybe you give it to some folks who are really poor and need, need money, right? That's what churches do. That's what we talk about. So let's read on. You put the money in a pouch, you go to the place. When you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, or other alcoholic drink. Then Feast there. What? Feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. Has it ever occurred to you that God knows, even better than us, the connection between celebration and gratitude for the gifts that he's given us? I dare say that if you forget how to celebrate, there's a piece of your spirit that will begin to diminish and a part of your soul that will start to be walled off from being grateful for the feast that he lays out in front of you. God's people got to get much better about celebration if you want to get better about being grateful to what he's given you. So how do you do it? I'm going to get real practical. Gonna, uh, this is what you can do when you leave this place. When you get up tomorrow, I'm going to give you two practical things, and we're going to wrap up. So about a year ago, my family was becoming really, really good at grumbling. Oh, we were just awful. We would come home. Uh, my kids, you know, Levi would be like, oh, man, this happened at school. I got hit in the head with a kickball, blah, blah, blah. The teachers are so mean to me. Emily, you know, complaining about homework from all these AP classes she's taken. My wife would come home. I can't stand my job. You know, I would come home and I can't stand. No, my job was fine. I'm fine. Um, yeah, pastor's in here. So, okay. Um, we were just becoming awful people. And I had heard about this. And so I went out to the store and I came back with a bag full of Hershey's Kisses. Now, I'm not asking you to believe everything that I say. But believe me, when I tell you that a Hershey's kiss is one of God's most perfect gifts <laughs> to creation. Now, partly this is because that we're mostly vegan in my house, and so having milk chocolate is kind of cheating. 
So it's a treat for me. But in my mind, there's nothing more perfect than a bite-sized morsel of good chocolate. And so I went out, I bought a, bowl, I bought a bag, and we poured it into a bowl, and I set it on our dinner table. And I said, okay, guys, every night for the foreseeable future, we're going to sit around the table, and after we eat, we're going to pass this bowl around. And I want you to announce something that you're grateful for. Something that has been great about the day. Something about the day that's been a gift. And when you say it, take a Hershey's kiss and eat it and enjoy it. Because God gave it to you. And we did it. And we liked it. I'm saying like, you know, who knows, of course, of eternity were changed. But it sure did change our disposition. If you want to take it a step further... I had a friend of mine who was recently, man, they were really struggling with, with just being grateful. And, and I talked to them and they were like, nothing good is going on in my life. It's awful. I can't stand what's going on. And I said to this person, I said, well, here's what I want you to do. For the next 30 days, I want you to text me three things every day that you're grateful for. And they have to be legit. They can't be like, oh, I'm glad, I'm grateful that I got all the great lights to work this morning. Like you have to think about it. They have to be legit. Three of them, 30 days. And I'm gonna hold you accountable to it. So I did. For 30 days, they would text me in the morning. Three things, you know. And they worked hard. It wasn't easy. And then some days I would have to send them a text like at 10.30 or noon and be like, hey, I haven't heard from you today. And so as I was preparing for this message, I, I sent him an email and I just said, would you write down for this community what 30 days of gratitude did to your spirit? And so they, they wrote me back and I just want to use their words to kind of seal this time. So they wrote this. To be honest, when you first told me to do this gratitude thing, I was really annoyed with you. <laughs> like here I was with all my legitimate complaints as to why the world was awful and your solution was to look around and be grateful. So truth be told, I went into the experiment with a really terrible attitude. I really wanted to just text you something like, I'm grateful I'm alive, I guess. And I'm grateful I only have to do this for 30 days because it's annoying. And I'm grateful that beer exists. But the thing that I found was that, yeah, we had a lot of tough things going on around here. But I wasn't really helping my own situation by seeking them out. So I found that when I tried to seek out good things, it was actually really easy. Like God was saying to me each day, see, I'm still here. Like I always am. I'm here in the sunset. I'm here in the breeze. I'm here in laughter. I'm here in friendship. I'm still here like I've always been. But you haven't been looking for me, so you haven't seen me. No matter what I was dealing with on any given day, I always had some real, true, non-pithy thing to be thankful for. And she closes this way. <clears throat> With this idea of being consistently thank you, thankful, it's like no matter what's going on, if you look around, 
if you look closely enough, you'll see little things. Even things you've seen a thousand times before in a different light. You will see God in these things ever so subtly saying, see, I'm still here. I promise. Gratitude is the key to seeing the gift of grace that God has given us. I can't say it any more plainly than that. God has given us so much. And he gives us so much more. But if we can't open our eyes to see the tiny things that he gives us every day, sometimes we miss the feast that he's given us that we hunger for so much. I'm gonna invite the band up and uh, Evan's gonna actually uh, play a song that he wrote off of Psalm 40. And I don't know where you are with gratitude. I don't know where you are with recognizing how much of your life is a gift. But I wanna tell you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a gift. And there is much to be thankful for. So I'm gonna ask you guys to go ahead and stand up. I'm gonna pray. Maybe you're at this place where you have never been grateful for anything in your life or you haven't been grateful for a long time. But maybe tonight's the night where you just kind of go to that door in your spirit and you open it up. And you say, it's time to be thankful. Let's pray.